Good morning, brothers and sisters. Well, last Sunday, we finished up our fall sermon series that we've been on for a little while on the book of Proverbs. And for the rest of this calendar year, um, we're going to focus on the lectionary readings, which all surround, have themes surrounding the season of Advent. Uh, Specifically this morning, the central figure of the third Sunday of Advent is John the Baptist. Now, you might have heard sermons about John the Baptist before, but I believe the scriptures always have a fresh word for us. Amen? Amen. So if you please grab a Bible and turn with me to our reading from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 3. It's on page 858 of your pew Bible. And let me open us in prayer. Father in heaven, you sent your son John the Baptist to preach a message saying, prepare the way. For the coming of your son. And we pray that you would prepare our hearts even now. For your written word. Pray that you would speak to us by your Holy Spirit. Transform us into your image. In Jesus name. Amen. 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 All right. So Luke chapter 3 begins with verse 1. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar. Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea and Herod being Tetrarch of Galilee. And the author Luke, who's well known for historical accuracy and detail, mentions several other rulers along with their exact titles. Now, just a little tip, if you ever have a hard time uh, pronouncing one of these words, um, just to do it with confidence, because there's only one or two people in this room that know the difference, all right? Um, So... um, but, but uh, Luke is known for historical detail, for exact titles, and the point in listing these figures is to locate the ministry of John the Baptist, and especially Jesus' arrival on the scene in verse 21, within a specific moment in human history. Right. So, so these, these lists of rulers, these dates that we get, this geography that we get, it all points to the fact that what we're about to hear, it's not a legend. It's not a parable. This isn't just religious philosophy. It concerns things that really happened amidst real-world leaders within a certain geography at a certain date, around the time of 29 AD, this would have been. It also lets us know that politically, it was a time of oppression for the Jewish people. The Roman emperor, the head honcho himself, Tiberius Caesar, is mentioned first, followed by a list of his powerful cronies, none of which are legitimate Jewish kings. So Israel is under occupation. They're ruled by a foreign scepter, faced with constant taxes and tariffs. Their compromised priesthood is in cahoots with the state. They're policed by Roman soldiers. And crucifixion takes place on the regular. So even though they're in the land, there's a real sense in which Israel has never fully returned from their exile 600 years earlier. Perhaps it's not surprising that their longing for the arrival of the Messiah, the Anointed One, to show up on the scene and set things right. In the words of the famous Advent hymn we sang just a moment ago, O come, O come, Emmanuel. This is the prayer of Israel at the time. And ransom captive Israel that mourns in lonely exile here until the Son of God appears. Now they were longing for the Messiah. They didn't even hope to expect that the Son of God might appear. 
So in the days of John the Baptist, Israel was in a state of exile and foreign domination. But perhaps worst of all, it had been almost 500 years since there had been a prophet in Israel. The Lord hadn't spoken to them for almost 500 years. The relationship had gotten a little icy. When last God spoke through the prophet Malachi around 460 BC, the Lord had promised that he would return and that he would send Elijah ahead of him. God promised in Malachi 4.5, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And so Israel waited. And they waited. And they waited. And they asked questions like, Where's Elijah? Where's the Messiah? The Lord promised that one of David's sons would rule on the throne forever. And what does it mean that God himself has promised to visit us? And perhaps in their waiting, some of them asked more personal questions. Has God forgot us? Is he even good? Does God love us anymore? This is why... Luke 3, verse 2 is so significant because it says that the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. Now, in biblical terminology, this is the official way to introduce a prophet. By mentioning that the word of the Lord came to them, by referencing who their father is, and by mentioning who the rulers were, the relevant rulers were at the time. So, for example, Hosea chapter 1, verse 1. The word of the Lord came to Hosea, son of Beeri, in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. Said them all with confidence. See that? <laughs> and you can flip through the prophets, and you'll find a similar formula with Isaiah, son of Amos, with Ezekiel, son of Buzi, and all the rest of them. The word of the Lord comes to them. We get the name of their father, and either before or after, we hear who the relevant rulers were at the time. And this biblical pattern is important to, to notice because it lets us know, without a doubt, that here in Luke 3, John the Baptist is being introduced as the first prophet of Israel in 500 years. Out of nowhere, the word of the Lord has returned to Israel like a bolt of lightning in a clear blue sky. And not only that, we learn elsewhere in the Gospels that John, he's dressed exactly like Elijah. He's wearing a camel hair robe, you know, and he had a leather belt, and he's eating locusts and wild honey. And Jesus affirms that he is the Elijah who was to come. So who is this guy, John the Baptist? What did he do? What was his message about? All four Gospels... This is rare, but all four Gospels identify John with this prophecy quoted here from Isaiah 40, which says that he's the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Prepare the way of the Lord. Make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled, and every mountain hill shall be made low, and the crooked paths shall be made straight, and the rough places shall become level, level ways. You might have heard that when a king visited an ancient city, they would fix the road before the king got there. We need to fill in the holes. If there's any hills, we need to level them out because the king is coming. And then this part is only quoted in Luke. It says, And all flesh shall see the salvation of God. 
Luke, who's always concerned about the outcast, he's always concerned about the poor, he's always concerned for the foreigner, he's always concerned for those who think they might be excluded from God's grace, he says, all flesh shall see the salvation of God. And as a way of understanding what's going on here, I want you to imagine for a moment that you're back in grade school. Say the fifth grade. Now that might be a really long time ago for some of you. For some of you, it was a little bit closer. But imagine you're back in fifth grade and you have this amazing teacher. She's beautiful. She's creative. And she loves all the students individually. And while she can be strict at times, she's always fair. With her in charge... The students feel safe. They're engaged in their lessons. They even begin to take on some of the teacher's best qualities, sharing with one another and looking out for the weak and the lonely. Now imagine the teacher decides to test these students by going away. So the students have to come to class without a teacher. And she leaves them detailed instructions about what to do each day, but they hear no further communication from her except that at some point she'll be returning. In the meantime, what happens to the classroom? Unfortunately, all the healthy patterns she's established begin to fall apart. The classroom is a mess. The stronger students take charge and begin to bully the weak. Where there used to be sharing, now there's a culture of stealing. In the noise and chaos of the classroom, there's no room for learning or creativity. And now imagine one morning... This wild-eyed kid with funny clothing shows up. And he says, hey, you guys, the teacher's on her way back. She'll be here soon, so get ready. And everybody can tell by the look on that kid's face that even though he's a weirdo, he's telling the truth. How do you think the students would respond? How should they respond? Do you think that the return of the teacher would be received as good news or bad news? It's complicated, right? Probably a little bit of both. That's the situation with John the Baptist. His importance was not in who he was in himself, but who he came to prepare the way for. That's why the Eastern Orthodox Church refers to him as St. John the Forerunner. Isn't that great? He was the one who prepared the way for Yahweh's return to Zion, for the coming of the Messiah, whose sandals, he says, he was not worthy to untie. But John's ministry of preparation was critical, because essentially his message was, get ready, guys. Get ready. The great Bible commentator William Barclay summarizes John's message in this way. He says, the king is coming! Mend Not your roads, but your lives. And like many prophets before him, John did more than preach. He embodied his message through symbolic action. Verse 3 says, He went into all the region around the Jordan, which is the original gateway to the promised land. That's where the people crossed into the promised land. Proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Now this... This idea of baptism was not new to the Israelites. They've been practicing it for a while. In fact, if you were a Gentile, if you were a pagan that wanted to worship in the synagogues at that time, you would get baptized. You and all your household and your children. That's what went on in, in the synagogue in that day. So the Jews knew about baptism and they thought they understood its purpose. It's an important way for those people 
pagan people to wash away the stain of moral corruption and idolatry. It was important, but it was for those guys, the pagans. However, when John came around, he said that it was Israel who needed to be baptized. And this message would not have been lost on them. Essentially, God was saying that they too, the Jews themselves, were in need of a baptism of repentance for forgiveness of sins. They needed moral cleansing. They needed to repent of their idols. The situation reminds me of the famous Anglican priest and evangelist John Wesley and is dealing with um, this peculiar group of Christians called the Moravians. So uh, John Wesley initially was like, oh, these, these people are heathens. I need to evangelize them. And the longer that he hung out, hung out with them, the more he realized, man, there's something about their faith that's different. There's something about their faith that goes deep. And um, there's a true story. He's crossing the Atlantic uh, on a boat with a bunch of Moravians. And this, there's a storm that comes, and it's terrible. And, and John the Baptist, I mean, uh, excuse me, John Wesley. Wrong John. Lots of good Johns in history. Uh, John Wesley, um, it, you know, he's like, I'm going to die. And he's terrified. He's terrified, and he realizes, I'm not ready to die. And I'm not sure I'm ready to meet my maker. And then meanwhile, he looks over at the Moravians and they're like singing songs and they're all peaceful and they're trusting their souls to Christ. And uh, he was like, you know, uh, from that moment on, John Wesley was never the same. He, re he realized that far from teaching the faith to the Moravians, he needed them to teach him. It was as if he'd gone to the situation saying, Man, these people are off. They need to repent and believe. Only to have the Lord turn the tables on them and put the question back to him. Have you truly repented? Do you truly believe in Christ? This was the question being posed to Israel by John's offer of baptism of repentance. They were supposed to be the people of God, but they needed to truly repent, truly believe. Truly seek renewal for their lives. Later on in the New Testament, Paul would ask similar questions to both Jewish and Gentile believers in Christ in the book of Romans. And I hope that the relevance of John's message is not lost on us today, in our own time, in our own place. For believing Christians living in the South, in the context of a widely complacent church, we need to let this wild-eyed prophet ask us the same sorts of questions. Do you really believe that God is real, that He exists, even when you're not at church, when you're alone, in the privacy of your own homes? Have you really repented? Have you put away secret areas of sin that are easy to hide out in public? Have you repented of things you've done in the past that are not in line, in line with God's word? Are you still seeking to justify those decisions you made? Has your Christianity become complacent with the political empires and emperors of our day? Have you put, their, put your hope in them for salvation? 
My friends, in the days of John the Baptist, the people of God had become complacent. They were on spiritual autopilot. They thought because their granddaddy had lived his life for God, that that would somehow count for them too. But John warns them in verse 8 to bear fruit in keeping with repentance. In other words, if you're truly a son or daughter of God, then let your actions do the talking. And he says, do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. See, that's the way that a compromiser talks. They rest on the past and on tradition, and yet they fail to do personal business with God. And John wants all of Israel to know, to have it crystal clear in their minds, that that's not the deal. That's never been the deal. A day of reckoning has arrived. He says in verse 9, Even now the axe is laid at the root of the tree. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Yes, that's an image of judgment. What the ministry of John communicates both to Israel in Jesus' day and to the church in our day is that it's impossible for someone, no matter their race or background or family heritage, it's impossible for somebody to be a child of God and to avoid the call to repentance. The call to repentance is ubiquitous for the people of God. It's universal. It's unavoidable. All four Gospels emphasize that the book of Acts always pairs repentance with faith and baptism. And the rest of the New Testament continues to speak of it as just an assumed part of the Christian life. The call to repentance. It's both general and it's specific. Do you like it when a preacher gives you specific ways to respond to God's word? Sometimes. Sometimes. (laughs) If you like that kind of thing, you would like John the Baptist. Look down with me at verse 10, it says, And the crowds asked them, What shall we do? So here the crowds are in view. This is the more general call on Israel at the time. And he answered them, Whoever has two tunics to share, uh, two tunics is to share with him who has none. And whoever has food is to do likewise. So compassion toward the poor The sharing of possessions was part of just the general call of repentance on God's people. And that call remains today. Now look with me at verse 12, because here the call starts to get more specific. It says, tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, collect no more than you are authorized to do. You may know that certain Jews at the time were employed by Rome to collect taxes from their own people. And that they were notorious for collecting extra taxes, for sort of skimming off the top. And for this reason, they were greatly despised among their own people. Now, famously and and controversially, Jesus opened his ministry to tax collectors. Even Matthew, one of the 12 intimate associates he went around with, and the author of the Gospel of Matthew, was a tax collector. And we understand, rightly so, that this inclusion of such men into the band of disciples much like the inclusion of prostitutes and other notorious people, was a sign of God's amazing grace. It certainly was. It certainly was. But we would be mistaken to think that these groups went right on behaving as they always had. 
as if they could be disciples of Jesus while at the same time continuing to cheat people out of their money. Guys, that's not the deal. And John sets the record straight right away. Collect no more than you are authorized to do. Next, in verse 14, some soldiers come to John. These would have been Jewish soldiers who served as guards for Herod. And they asked him, what shall we do? What about us? And he said to them, do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation, and be content with your wages. In other words, don't misuse your power. That's a word we need to hear in so many spheres in our culture. Don't misuse your power. But interestingly, in neither case does John tell them that repentance will require them to leave their jobs. They're required to flee from the sinful traps that often often accompany their, their work, but he didn't tell them that they needed to leave their jobs. Some of us work in precarious professions. Amen? <laughs> so what about us? How would John's call to repentance be contextualized in our own day? Well, I think his general call to have compassion on the poor just remains the same. That's the same for the people of God in the New Covenant as it was in the Old. Followers of Jesus should regularly set aside money beyond what we give to the church, set aside clothes, food to share with the poor. And in particular, I want to highlight the importance of compassion to two groups. First, we should remember the poor in the two-thirds world where jobs are scarce and things like clean water and education are difficult to come by. And second, we should remember the poor who are close to us. Those neighbors or family members or people in our community who are hard up and need some help. Be careful about loving the poor out there and never loving the poor in your midst. Now we might ask, how much should we give? Um, there's a great um, quote on that in Mere Christianity that C.S. Lewis gives. He says, I do not believe one can settle how much we ought to give. I'm afraid the only safe rule is to give more than we can spare. In other words, if our expenditure on comforts, luxuries, amusements, etc. is up to the standard common among those with the same income as our own, we're probably giving away too little. He concludes, if our charities do not at all pinch or hamper us, I should say they are too small. There ought to be things we should like to do and cannot do because our charitable expenditure excludes them. Now, I think one of the cool things about John the Baptist is he challenges God's people to just get real. Right? This is, it's not all loose, man. There's got to be a spine to this thing. The spine of this thing is justice compassion to the poor, walking rightly with God. There was a cartoon strip that showed a skeptic shouting to the heavens, God, if you're up there, tell us what we should do. And then surprisingly, a voice comes back. Feed the hungry. House the homeless. Establish justice. And the skeptic looks alarmed. Just testing, he says. <laughs> Me too, answers the voice. So that's the general call, but repentance can also be specific in our day. If you're a Christian lawyer, don't lie as a way of perverting justice. 
If you're a police officer, don't use excessive force or racial profiling. If you're an alcoholic, the call to repentance is not a mystery. Get into a recovery program and figure out how to put away the bottle. If you're constantly angry or you gossip about other people, make a fresh commitment to confess these things to a brother or sister and repent. Actually, I think it would be helpful to make a distinction between confession on the one hand and repentance on the other because they're both important, but they're not the same thing. So confession, in confession, we admit that what we did was wrong. And confession is important because in confession, we agree with God, we agree with heaven on the standards of good and evil. Amen? Amen. That's a good thing. But repentance is even more important. Because in repentance, we make a commitment not to do that thing again. Right? That's repentance. We don't just, we just, so, so I, I think sometimes, um, you know, we, we sort of invent this false kind of Christianity that never existed, where believers are always confessing and never repenting. That's not the deal. And any suggestion otherwise is a delusion. Now, that doesn't mean that our repentance happens all at one time and that we never have to do it again because we've left sin behind. I've yet to meet that Christian. I am not that man. That's not the way it worked for the Apostle Peter or the Apostle Paul or anyone else. The scriptures teach that even for believers in this life, the spirit will always be at war with the flesh. There's a battle that goes on. But the point is, we're never allowed to come to a place where we're just, we just make peace with sin. We never come to a place where we just stop repenting, stop turning back to God. In the words of the old Shaker hymn, we keep turning, turning, till we turn round right. This process never ceases in this life, never ceases until Jesus returns. Until then, we remain committed to a lifestyle of repentance. And where we fall short, in past, present, future, we trust that to the forgiveness, to the blood of Jesus. And I want to end with this. This has been sort of an uncomfortable message, as it always is, when you preach on the topic of repentance. But as uncomfortable as a figure as John the Baptist is, there's a reason why verse 18 summarizes his message as being good news to the people. That's what it says. And he was a popular figure. He was more popular than he expected. He's like, what are these crowds doing here? You guys are a brood of vipers. Are you seriously going to repent? He was more popular than he expected he would be. I want to mention three reasons why John the Baptist is a figure that brings good news. And they have to do with each member of the Trinity. So first, God the Son, second, God the Holy Spirit, and third, God the Father, all right? First of all, John's baptism was not just a baptism of repentance. It was a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins, for the washing away of our sins, for the separating of our sins as far as the east is from the west. Do you long for that? Do you long for it to be the case that in the book of God, your guilt is no more? It's been nailed to the tree. 
A fresh start was being offered by the coming of the Messiah. In fact, a fresh start is always, always on offer for anyone who would turn to Jesus. Secondly, John's message was good news because he announced the coming of the Holy Spirit. In verse 16, he says that he, John, baptizes with water, but the Messiah will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Now, the difference there is that water can cleanse you on the outside, but when you pass through fire, you're purged from the inside out. You're purified from the inside out. So there was a new kind of holiness, a new kind of sanctification that was going to be on offer. And even the work of repentance is not something that we just muster up on our own. It's, a work, it's an internal work of the Holy Spirit within us. The gospel is good news because it brings transformation, not just forgiveness. God doesn't just want to forgive you of sin. He wants to transform you to be who he intended you to be when he made you. And finally, John's ministry was good news because it showed that God the Father had not forgotten Israel. God was still good. They were still his kids. Long lay the world in sin and error pining till he appeared and the soul felt its worth. If you didn't know that God loved you by the fact that he created you, how about your soul being dignified for a second time that he sent his son, his glorious son, down from heaven to pursue you, to seek and to save the lost for us and for our salvation? When the people heard that, the soul felt its worth. God the Father is ever waiting for the prodigal and the older brother to return home. And all of you can return to God this morning. This offer is for all of you. As we look toward the coming of Christmas, will you hear John's call to repent? Will you let the Lamb of God take away your sins? Will you allow yourself to be transformed by the fire of the Holy Spirit? And remember that your good Father is waiting for you to return to Him. In Jesus' name, amen. amen.